Will full-time distance learning in law schools be accepted long-term? Kyle McEntee of Law School Transparency has some thoughts. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, Kyle. How are you doing today? I am doing okay. All the days are running together at this point. Oh, so is there no uh, demarking line between weekend and weekday? You know, there is. I've actually been able to manage my weekends a lot better lately, but I still have no idea what day it is on any given day, even the weekends. <laughs> I've been measuring time just sort of indirectly, like anecdotally so, by the Netflix programming that I'm consuming. <laughs> I get that. <laughs> so, well, anyway, listen, our, uh, our topic today, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, so, audience, uh, Colin and I are going to be talking about uh, distance learning in law schools. And so, right now, as I'm sure many people are aware, law schools around the country are doing the remote learning things. Everybody is off at their homes or they, they went back to their parents' house or wherever it is that they call home and they're learning remotely from their professors. And so, Kyle, my understanding of this is that norm, under normal circumstances, non-COVID-19 uh, era here, that uh, what's going on right now would not be allowed under the existing accreditation standards, at least for the first-year law students. And so anyway, I'm just kind of using it as a primer to set up this first question. So I, I do know over time, the ABA has evolved accrediting standards when it comes to distance learning, and they have some major mile markers in 2002, 2014, and 2018. But uh, could you walk us through that and then bring us to where those standards uh, lie today? Yeah. So I think the place to start is with the definition of distance education. And it's pretty basic. Uh, it's when students and faculty are separated for more than one third of instruction. It could be synchronous, it could be asynchronous, but really what matters is how much time are you separated? And so the ABA, the accreditor of U.S. law schools, U.S. JD programs, they first added a standard related to distance education back in 2002, as you, you were saying. And at the time, the ABA standards prohibited distance education for first years. And then it said that in terms of your entire experience in law school, you could have a maximum of 12 credits count towards graduation that were distance education with a maximum of four per term. And so then over time, we saw a bit of an evolution towards liberalization, uh, although it's been very slow and then has accelerated a little bit. So in 2014, that was the actual next update. They still prohibited 1L distance education. They upped the maximum to 15 credits instead of 12 and then removed any restrictions related to the number of credits you could take per term. And then in 2018, we saw 1L distance education allowed for the first time, but it was a maximum of 10 credits. And then the ABA also upped that credit limit from 15 to one third of required credits. And that's where we are today, except that there are a variety of law schools that have a variance, which is basically you know, an, an excuse to not be compliant with the standards. And schools like Syracuse, Mitchell Hamline and a few others have this special permission to not be compliant with the standards. But then again, with the COVID-19 crisis, those considerations are a little bit out the window. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And so 
in terms of how the ABA updates these by accreditation process, so I know there's a variety of concerns that come up and what is defined as an ABA accredited school. But, uh, you know, just in terms of this, and I know there's going to be a new normal at some point, but can you walk us through what that accreditation process would look like? How does it get started? And uh, what does the process look like kind of from the inside out? Yeah. So, I mean, at the top, what we have is the U.S. Department of Education recognizes various accreditors. And among the accreditors it recognizes is the ABA, American Bar Association, Section of Legal Education and Admissions to the Bar. And what the Section of Legal Education is allowed to do is approve programs that provide the first degree in law. And so the actual seat of power is not with the so-called big ABA, it's with the Sections Governing Council. And they, along with the section staff, will usually draft revisions to the standards, including new rules. And so then at some point, the council will vote to send a new rule to notice and comment, which basically gives the public an opportunity to hear what the ABA has planned and then comment on it. And then after that, after a few months, the the council will revise or reject or approve the revisions. And then if the council decides to approve it, it'll then go to the ABA House of Delegates. And at that point, the ABA House of Delegates can acquiesce or they can decide not to acquiesce. If they do, then the standard becomes effective and all schools must follow it. And if they don't, then the council gets another vote and then they can go back and forth a few times before eventually the the decision rests exclusively with the section of legal education uh, and their council. Okay, so uh, just in terms of that first step with the House of Delegates, is that like a twice a year thing at you know the mid year meeting and annual meeting, or is that any exactly? Time? Oh, okay, so it, you have like basically two major windows there to to do this, and then if it doesn't get resolved, they can settle this out on their own, right? Exactly. That's exactly right. Okay. Well, let's connect the dots with today. So I understand that we're, we're having to adjust to a lot of things that have not been seen before and law schools are scrambling to make the most of it. But where does that actual authority uh, come from? So like students right now are learning remote and it's not really allowed under the existing accreditation standards, but you did talk about a variance in that. So what can you tell us, like, where does the authority come to award actual credits for what the students are doing today? So the accreditation standards have two types of variances. One is an emergency variance. One way that was used in the past was after Hurricane Katrina, there were special rules in place to help the schools affected by that. And then there's also experimental variances, which permit schools to be out of compliance. But it's actually not through the function of the variance system that schools are now allowed to hold distance education courses uh, to get through this crisis. Instead, what the U.S. Department of Education did was allow for accreditation bodies like the ABA to be more permissive in their enforcement of the standards. And so the education department has allowed this for this current semester up through, I believe, June 1st. But there's a lot of questions about what happens next semester and throughout the rest of the summer. There's not been any guidance yet, although I think we can expect some. You know, there's, as with a lot of things right now, there's more questions than answers. Well, that gives me a nice, nice lead in there to my last question, which I'm going to set up just a little bit here. So I'm going to call upon my experience at Barbary to sort of set up this last question. And so when I was taking Barbary for the bar, it was a remote learning program. And so uh, similar to like a, a 1L program, you know, where the, where the classes are 
pretty uniform across the country, basically. You know, there was the multi-state part. And so that multi-state part, for those that are less familiar with this, I think every lawyer probably knows about this, but the multi-state part, you know, they had video learning and you had like this handful of really great professors that would teach you these these subjects. And so that was how we learned that multi-state part. And so what was great about that, you know, massive economies of scale, you know, and like the law school model, trying to take advantage of some of these economies of scale, you could hire, you know, professors from around the country and maybe a handful to teach at least the lecture part of that uh, first year experience in kind of a uniform way. And maybe that's a cost that all the individual law schools could share. And these law professors that are really good at teaching students, you know, you could pay them a lot, but because you're teaching so many students, there's economies of scale. And the students are getting the best of those professors, the best of the best. And you're also able to leverage technology. So I'm just talking about this for like a first year program where it's fairly uniform. And then the law schools could in turn, you know, their their local professors there could help expand upon that educational experience by supporting the learning curriculum there by answering questions as the students might have them at their local schools. And you could kind of continue on business as usual for the 2L year and the 3L year. But uh, anyway, I wanted to use that as a primer because obviously with the COVID-19, there's going to be some new normal and people are seeing stuff they haven't seen before. So here's my question. Do you think there will be enormous pressure to increase distance learning options going forward after we get back from COVID-19? Why or why not? Yeah, I'm not sure about enormous, but this current crisis is making legal educators and those of us who care about it think about the difference between what's necessary and what's nice to have. And in a big way, the ABA accreditation standards don't really make that distinction all that well. We actually have a report on this that we just released last month called LST's 2025 Vision. So if you want to go to lawschooltransparency.com, it's pretty easy to find from there. But what we did in this report was included proposals that range from minor alterations to complete elimination of standards, um, as well as uh, challenges to the council to consider fundamental shifts to interlocking standards that really limit what's possible. And so it's not really a comprehensive analysis, but our proposals in it do aim to refocus the standards on baseline quality. And what we're really after here is that the standards should only prescribe specific inputs if required by federal law or if necessary to ensure that schools prepare students upon graduation for admission to the bar and for the effective ethical and responsible participation as members of the profession. And we just think it's not super appropriate for a series of standards to prescribe how exactly a law school organizes its affairs and fulfills its stated mission and goals. And so the example you outlined, it's actually very difficult to pull something like that off under the current standards. And there need to be substantial changes to the standards, not only in terms of what's in them, but the core philosophy that motivates them or the core philosophy that animates them. And you know, I, I personally have a problem with standards that presume that a school can achieve its core objectives, however it defines itself, without meeting an array of checkboxes that are provided by the standards, some of which, without a doubt, go too far. Well, excellent. Well, that's all the time we have for today, Cod. But thank you so much for coming by, answering some of these questions and, and kind of making a prediction there, I think. But, uh, you know, if, <laughs> if our uh, listeners, they want to follow up and ask you some questions, learn more about the work that you do over there at uh, Law School Transparency, how can they find you? LawSchoolTransparency.com is the easiest way, but my email address is Kyle at LawSchoolTransparency.com. All right. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate us in your favorite podcasting app. 
also, we'll cite the resources that uh, we used for this episode. And uh, that includes Kyle's LST's 2025 vision report there. I've got a link for that. I hope that's okay, Kyle. Oh, yeah, of course. (laughs) And that'll be in our show notes at LegalTalkNetwork.com. That's LegalTalkNetwork.com. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Colletti. Stay strong, everybody. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.